0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Thank you, Spirit, for being amongst us and for teaching us this morning. We pray for Christ's glory. Amen. He was a giant. I mean, he must have been over six and a half feet tall. And he was bald. And he had a huge, bushy, black beard. And he spoke with a low, deep voice. And he rode a motorcycle to his job as my school principal at Brimfield Elementary and Junior High School, District 309. Mr. Griner was intimidating to me. For all those reasons, but also surely because he had an opportunity when I was younger to, as they say, apply the Board of Education to my seat of understanding. And I never forgot that. So for all of those reasons, he was intimidating everybody, but for that one in particular, he was so to me. So when he came in and interrupted our junior high English class one morning, we all, me in particular, paid keen attention He said that he'd just come back from some sort of an educators' conference, and he had something serious that he wanted to talk to us about. And he began sternly, his deep voice rumbling out from behind his beard, How many of you have ever heard of crack? I hadn't, and I was pretty glad that I hadn't, whatever crack was. But he then began to explain to us about a new cheap street drug, crack cocaine, that was beginning to make inroads into schools in the area. And he told us a little bit about it and warned us to stay away from it. And when he left, that was the effect of his time. I was a little more informed and a little more warned. Well, I'm no Mr. Griner, and most of you aren't junior high school students, and we're not going to be talking about drugs this morning. Nonetheless, I do hope that this morning's sermon serves a similar purpose for you as Mr. Greiner's lecture did for me. I hope that what, you've, that what we're going to talk about, I hope that you've never heard of it. And I hope it hasn't even begun to make inroads into your heart and your mind. I hope not. But I hope that at the end of this morning you'll be a little bit more informed and a little bit more warned about what is a growing spiritually dangerous false teaching. The theory of the openness of God. Also known as open theism. I should say right up front that I carry no illusions and I'll be able to thoroughly deal with this subject here. It's a large subject. Over the last five to seven years, there have been a lot of books written about it, for and against. And I wouldn't be able to cover them all, even if I had read them all. So this is going to be a limited sermon. But if you want to discuss this further, I again say that about 1220 or 1230 or so over here in the fellowship hall, we'll have a discussion time afterwards where we can go a little more in depth. won't be right after the service, so there'll be some time to fellowship afterwards. But 1220, 1230, if you'd like, join us over there. But even there, we won't be able to cover this all thoroughly. It touches on a lot of different subjects. It's large. I'm going to have to limit it even there. But here in particular, in this sermon, I'm I'm focusing on one main point. Here's what I'm shooting for this morning. This main point. God perfectly knows all of the future in detail. And he's bringing it to pass for his own glory. God perfectly knows all of the future He's not in the dark about anything. He doesn't just know the gist of how things are going to go. He knows every single detail about tomorrow, about next Thursday, about the year 2007. All things about all of the future. He perfectly knows them. And he is bringing them to pass. He is active. He's not a passive observer or reactor. He's bringing all things to pass for his own glory. God's glory, as best He understands it, not necessarily as best we understand it. God's glory is God's chief motivation. That part should sound familiar from our last four weeks in Ephesians chapter 1. God's glory is His chief, motiv- chief motivation, and He perfectly knows the future, and is bringing it to pass for that glory. This morning is a departure from my usual habit of preaching through passages through verses in order, within the chapter, within the book in which they occur. We've been doing that for the last four weeks in the first half of Ephesians chapter 1. But I notice that as we treat verse 11, Ephesians one eleven, in its context, as we've done, in the flow of Paul's main argument, I also notice that that verse has some significant things to say about this issue of open theism. And because part of my job here, part of my duty as the under-shepherd of this part of God's flock, is to warn of danger. I'm going to take the opportunity this morning from Ephesians 1.11 to address it, to warn you, to slightly more inform you and to warn you about open theism. We're going to address this topic by asking and answering three questions. First, what exactly is open theism and where did it come from? It's important to know, first of all, we're going to try, try to get a handle on that a little bit. Secondly, then, we'll ask, why is open theism wrong? And that's what's going to eventually land us back in Ephesians 1. After we've looked at that, then the third question we'll move on to is a logical one. Why does any of this matter? So, what is it and where did it come from? Why is it wrong and why does any of this matter? That's the structure for this morning. Let's go right to the first question. What is open theism and where did it come from? You know, starting points are often telling. In his 1998 book, The God Who Risks, John Sanders lays out his case for open theism. It begins with a story. When he was younger, driving home from work one day, he came upon a car accident near his home with the emergency personnel still on the scene. He pulled over and got out of his car to go see what was going on, and a kind neighbor stopped him. And John learned the horrifying news that that was his brother's motorcycle and that his brother was dead. Unexpected personal tragedy. Pain and loss in the world. How do we make sense of those types of things? And Sanders is clear that that event and a couple others like it were the starting point on his journey towards open theism. Taking his personal story and generalizing it, open theism arose from the personal struggle of Christians who did not like the existing answers to the problems of pain and suffering and tragedy in this world and the allegedly impersonal, unloving God behind them. He looks at a suddenly deceased relative and asks, naturally, why? Why did this happen? And the two answers that were available to him at the time both began a similar place. They both began by saying, for reasons... We do not fully understand, but God does. And then they diverge. They both begin there and say either God caused it or God allowed it. For reasons we do not fully understand, God caused that tragedy or God allowed that tragedy. One of those two things. Either way, though, these two different theologies, both of them were dissatisfying to John Sanders and others like him. In their minds, both left them with a cruel God. A God who either kills one's brother or knows something or someone else is going to kill one's brother, could stop it, but doesn't want to. Either one of those left them incredibly dissatisfied with God, and so they began to think of another way to answer that question. They began to ask, why does this happen? And they came up with what became the open theism answer. And here it is. God allowed the tragedy because... He was unaware of what people would do. God did not know it was going to happen. But he's surely right there with you emotionally in the experience now that it has happened. Open theism, here's a a basic, easy definition. Open theism holds that God does not know the future. He is open to developments. The future is created moment by moment and is not known beforehand by anybody, God included. He knows the past perfectly. He knows the present perfectly. That makes him really wise about how to predict the future and make guesstimates of the future because he knows everything, but he doesn't know it. He finds out what's going to happen as it happens. He's open to developments. The basic simple definition. Now, according to this theology, God does have somehow some big picture general plans like related to the end of time, related to the crucifixion, some big picture general things that somehow he's going to work out. Because he's so wise and because he knows so much, he's very capable of dealing with whatever hand uh, He ends up in his, in his hand, whatever hand he's dealt. He can work things out wisely. They might say it's sort of like a parent of toddlers who has a plan for the day. Now, the toddlers are going to do all kinds of crazy stuff during that day, but a really wise, a really competent parent would still be able to somehow buy the groceries, clean the house, and get dinner on the table. I mean, many of us do that all the time. It's possible, despite the unpredicted things that go on. They might say something kind of like that. That's basically what they believe. God doesn't know the future, but he's open to it, and he deals with it as it comes to him. And what I described is also their starting point. It starts at the side of a road next to a car accident. In other words, in life, in painful human experience. It doesn't first, tellingly, does not first start in the Bible. Right away, a methodological flag goes up in my mind. As I come to this, I come to it cautiously because, though starting in life is not necessarily a guarantee of being wrong, it is the perfect recipe for coming up with your own theology and then going hunting through the Bible to support it. It's the perfect recipe. It doesn't mean necessarily it's wrong. And so when they do go to the Bible, which they do because they're believers, we have to follow them there. And we have to see, you know, does the Bible teach this or not? Is the God of open theism the God of the Bible? Show me. And they think they can. They think it's there. And one has to admit, they amass an impressive list of passages that seem to support them. There's a lot of stuff in their books. It, this is not like a Bible-like theology that has, you know, 100 pages of, of theory and, you know, one verse tacked on the end. It's not like that. There's a lot of stuff. We're going to have to suffice by looking at just one, one verse. If you might turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, this is a verse that they will use. Genesis chapter 6, right before the story of Noah. We're going to look here beginning in verse 5, Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Then the end of verse 7, For I am sorry that I have made them. Open theists see this and ask, Doesn't this imply that God has learned something? I mean, he looks at the world and says, What a wreck! Look what's happened to people. Every intention of their heart is only evil all the time. What an indictment on us, but it's true. But look what's happened. And he's grieved in his heart, and he's sorry that he ever made us. Does that not imply that he's figured out what happened and is even admitting a mistake? He sorrows over what's come to be. He didn't realize that was going to happen. Doesn't that imply that? Says the open theist. You see their point? It seems to imply that if you look just right there only at that. We could have picked any other number of passages. We could have skipped ahead to Genesis 22. We've got Abraham sacrificing Isaac and God says, Whoa, stop. Now I know that you fear me. Doesn't that imply that God didn't know beforehand? We could have skipped ahead to Exodus where twice... Moses, God says he's going to do something. Moses prays to him, and God's response is seemingly something like, "Huh, good point, Moses. I hadn't thought of that." And then he does something different. Twice that happens. We could go lots of other places. There are a lot of passages like this. It paints a picture, which in some way might be compelling because it gets God off the hook. As if we need to get him off the hook. But it gets him off the hook for the questions of tragedy and pain and evil. God is not remotely responsible for things because he didn't even know they were going to happen. You can't blame him for that. In some ways, it's attractive. He's emotionally engaged with us. He cares. He grieves. He sorrows. But he didn't do it. didn't even let anybody else do it. He didn't know. That's the first question. What is open theism? Where did it come from? Obviously, I've got a whole bunch of problems with this. I'm going to move on to the second question. Why is open theism wrong? Parts of it may sound good, maybe, but what's wrong with it? We'll start with the Bible. Now, as I was walking through some of that material, I hope you were kind of arguing the case in your mind, and you're thinking, but couldn't you read that verse this way? Or what about this other passage? Or I hope you were kind of doing that, and you should be. That's good. That's valid. We could look right back at Genesis 6 and say, sure, yes, exactly. The Lord saw what had happened to people, and He definitely was sorry. But because other places in the Bible tell us that He knows everything, we can read this and say, He didn't intellectually gain any knowledge. He experienced it. It became real for Him. Now that it's happened in time and in space, it's vivid, it's right there, it's real. He didn't intellectually learn anything, and we might use a a parent-child analogy of our own. I might say something like, it's like a parent taking a child to get vaccinations. You, the parent, intellectually know this is going to hurt. You're quite aware of that. But sitting there and watching it is a whole different experience. Watching the needle go in, Watching your son or daughter wail and look at you like, save me. It's a whole different experience watching it. You might even say in the midst of this of this situation, you might even say to your child, I'm sorry, honey. I'm sorry. Hang on. Just one more. It's almost over. You might even say that. And you are sorry. You are grieving. Who likes to see that? But you're not. You didn't learn any new information. You're not sorry because you just realized it. And you're also not sorry enough to have not caused it. And you're also not sorry enough to stop it because you could. For reasons that only you understand. That your child does not. Your child cannot grasp disease. No way of understanding that. But you do. For reasons that you alone understand. You know that what is must be. That's why you caused it and you're going to cause it again for the next round of vaccinations, and you're going to cause it again for the next child. It hurts you, you sorrow, you grieve, you experience it, and it's new for you, but you didn't intellectually learn. I would submit that that's actually what's going on in Genesis 6. We could offer similar explanations for Abraham and Isaac and Moses praying. We could talk about that, which one of these different interpretations is better. But I want to step back and make a general observation a broader general observation. What kind of passages are these? God and Noah. God and Abraham and Isaac. God and Moses. They're stories. All of them. And in fact, the vast majority of passages used by the open theist to support his case biblically are just that. They're narratives. They're stories. And that right away throws up a second methodological problem here. Now listen carefully to this. It is not that we, we have to ignore this, the stories. All scripture is scripture. We, all have to, we have to synthesize it somehow. We have to put it all together. We can't just throw those out. But what happens when you look at them first, the stories first, or worse yet only, what happens is that one side makes a set of inferences from the stories because they're not clear. They're not exactly about what you're trying to talk about. You make a set of inferences and they sound pretty good. They seem to kind of hold together. And then the other side gets a hold of the very same stories like I did with Genesis 6. Makes another story, another set of inferences that also seems pretty good. And then you fight about which one seems better. Are we are we stuck there? Are we just left there to say, oh, I like mine better because it fits my theology better that I had before I came to the passage? And you like yours better because it fits your prior theology. And we're just going to argue about that. Are we stuck there? Thankfully, no. God has not left us in our simple preferences. We need to read, and here's a basic point of hermeneutics, the art of interpretation. We need to read the stories of the Bible with minds informed by passages that are explicitly about the subject we're trying to get at. Now, the narratives are Scripture. We do read them, but we first read them already pre-informed by passages that are explicitly about the subject at hand. I'm not saying, listen, this needs to be made very clear, I'm not saying that clear passages interpret unclear passages because what's clear to one person might not be clear to another. That still leaves us in the same argument. What I am saying is that passages that are about the subject at hand first form the foundation, or maybe the lens through which we look at passages that are not at the first level about what we're asking. Maybe an example from a different thing will help. Do we determine how one is saved by first, or worse yet only, reading the gospel accounts of Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler? Because if we do... It sounds a whole lot like Jesus told him he could be saved by works. Do we read that and then throw in the Acts accounts of Paul's conversion? And then then conclude that how people are saved is by works, accompanied by the audible voice of God and temporary blindness? I sure hope we don't do that. I hope we begin in passages that are explicitly talking about how all people everywhere always get saved. Passages like Ephesians 2 or Romans 3. We read them that are universal and explicitly about how one gets saved. We read them and then interpret the nuances of the stories about the rich young ruler or Paul getting knocked off a donkey and blinded. That's how we have to interpret. And it's right here at this point that the open theist case falls. We could go back and forth about how best to interpret Genesis 6. We can argue about the sacrifice of Isaac, but to do so is really to fight the wrong fight. Instead, open theism is wrong because we need to look at the passages that are directly teaching about things like sovereignty and omniscience. We need to look at those passages that are directly addressing this issue and find out what do they say first. And when we look at them, we find a consistent and clear message. God perfectly knows all the future. And it's bringing it to pass for his own glory. One example before we go to Ephesians 1. The book of Isaiah. Chapter starting with chapter 40. You can look at them. There's like five or six chapters in there. In which God is, as it were, arguing with idols. Trying to prove who's really a God. And there are several statements in this series of chapters that will, that will come right out and speak to this issue. He says in in chapter 41, verses 22 and 23, saying essentially, Come on, idol, tell us what is to happen. Declare to us the things to come. What is to come hereafter? Tell us what is to come hereafter. And catch this, this is the important point. That we may know that you are gods. God saying this to the idols. A real God knows the future. Idols can't. That's the issue. That's the way you distinguish between the two. That's what God's arguing with the idols about. Chapter 46, verses 8 to 11. God finally settles this issue with them. He says, I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose." Who knows the end before the beginning? Me. Me alone, thus says the Lord. And I know it because I planned it. I purposed it. I bring it to pass. There is none like me. A real God who knows all the future. He declares some of it in prophecy. He carries out all of it by his power. None can thwart him. He is omnipotent, sovereign over history. That's the point of those couple of passages. That's the point of his whole main argument in those five or six chapters. He and he alone knows the future. That's why he and he alone is God. Real gods know all of the future and have a purpose that they are bringing to pass. Now, exactly how God knows and has actually fixed the future, how he knows that, and yet the world still contains Real people who make real choices that have real consequences. You know How that works out has been discussed for a long time by Calvinists and Arminians. Go back and forth about that. But regardless of how that debate ends, both John Calvin and Jacob Arminius, both of them believe that God perfectly knows all the future. And it's bringing it to pass for his own glory. They both knew that God is in charge of everything. And knows all. But lest we think that these declarations are only about a little bit of general history, or some of the gist of what's going to happen with Israel, lest we miss the point, now we turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. If you're following your Bibles, you might want to turn there. Ephesians 1.11. We've already talked about this verse twice over the last several weeks. Some of this will sound a little familiar, but I'm going to lean on a couple of different things in the verse this morning for the sake of talking about open theism. Verse 11, I'll read from the beginning. In him we have obtained an inheritance, or the NIV reads, have been chosen, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The context is one of salvation. We've seen this before. Christians were made God's inheritance, claimed by him. Last week's sermon. But how did that happen? We were predestined. Beforehand, God set the destiny for Christians. Predestined them. How was that done? Notice the words begin to stack up here. It was done in accordance with God's purpose. What God wanted done determined the predestining. He's a purpose, an end, a goal. And in line with that, he predestined us for salvation. And that's pretty hard to do if he didn't even know that you and I were going to exist one day. It's pretty hard to do. But notice how this verse expands beyond discussing only salvation. It goes far beyond that. Predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This one who had a purpose and predestined, he, that is God, works all things. It does not say all that he does. You know The things that he does do, he does those according to what he wants. But there's other stuff he doesn't do. It does not say that. It says he works all things. He works everything. God does everything. Yes, he uses people and actions as means. He ultimately works all things behind them, though. He's accomplishing his end through people. He reigns over all things, motorcycle accidents included. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. I take a deep breath there, because I'm imagining that that just challenged some of you. Motorcycle accidents included? fatal motorcycle accidents included yes the text says he works all things he is working all things countless other places say the same he is sovereign for all the earth and if that word sovereign means anything it means that he is in charge of everything you are not sovereign if you've got 80 percent of the stuff under your control Sovereign's one of those words that's Encompassing. He is the sovereign of the world. He reigns over it all. Read the book of Job. In the book of Job, Satan does a lot of stuff to Job. Job twice attributes it to God. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the very next words, last verse of Job chapter one. In all that Job did, he did not sin or charge God with wrong. Last verses of chapter 1. God says Satan can do it. Satan takes Job's wealth, kills his servants, kills his children. Job said God did it and the Bible says Job is right. It's clear. God works all things. Jacob Arminius, the original Arminian, he believed that too. Back in Ephesians now. God works all things according to his counsel. His determining deliberation is a purpose, an intention, and he decides how to do that. You see the words moving on here. He has a purpose. He works all things according to his own deliberating, his own counsel. It's as if God takes counsel and says, what should I do? He's talking to himself here. I'm going to carry out this purpose by doing this, and then he wills it. It's the counsel of his will. He has an end goal, he decides how to accomplish it, and he locks it in. God sets his will based on what he decides. We don't set God's will. God works all things according to his counsel. Now previously I've said more about how God formulates his counsel and his will. He does so independently without looking ahead to the future, I'm persuaded. But I'm not going to lean very heavily on that right now. But I'm going to try to make clear the open theism discussion that this verse, Ephesians 1.11, is explicitly about what God knows and what God does. And it explicitly contradicts the open theist position. This verse says, God perfectly knows all things about the future. He knows all of them because He planned all of them. And He's carrying them all out For the sake of his own glory, that's why I'm using this verse as a jumping-off point for this sermon. This verse is a primary place to warn against open theism. We need to let the passages that directly address the issues of omniscience and sovereignty lay the foundation for us, that then tells us how to go interpret the stories of Genesis 6 and 22, etc. Ephesians 1:11 is such a verse. It is clear. God planned, knows, and is driving all things in the future. Ephesians, Isaiah, countless other passages we don't have time for make this issue clear. We haven't even touched on the problem that open theists have with the issue of prophecy. Think about that one for a second. These and other reasons open theism is wrong. Avoid it. We've seen some of what it is, where it came from, some of why it's wrong. But I think a natural question that arises, and probably a natural question in many of your minds is, what's the big deal? You know, I already believe that God knew the future. Why are we spending all this time on this? Why does any of this matter? I mean, there are just a host of obscure theological topics. We could spend months debating, and we could talk about this bad idea or that interesting option, and in the end we'd find that, you know, really what we already believe is true anyway, so why did we waste all that time? It's a good question. First, it's important, because this issue shows signs of not remaining perpetually obscure. So like I said in the beginning, I hope you've never heard of this, and I hope it seems crazy to you, and I hope it stays that way. But it may not. There have been a lot of books written about it recently, but more importantly, the idea is coming up in books that aren't explicitly about open theism. You may never buy one of those books and read it, but you might buy a book about apologetics, or a book about men's issues, two books about those issues I've read of open theism in. It's not called open theism, but here's how it works. In a men's book, challenging men to be risk-takers, even though they don't know what's going to happen out there, they say, match the nature of God, man of God. The nature of God is to be a risk-taker. Look, he doesn't know what's going on in the future either, but he still risked himself. He still came out there on the limb to extend this offer to you. He's taking a chance with how how the world's going to work out, Be like him. You do that also. See, the main point is not to talk about God, but it is talking about God. It's saying, this is what God is like. It's there on the shelves in Christian bookstores today. So you should be aware. But the reason that you need to be aware is that all ideas have consequences. Some big, some small. And this idea, this vision of God has huge consequences two stand out to me. First, remember when we were talking in Isaiah in those chapters in the 40s, God's debating with an idol about what a true God is. What's an idol? What's God? And the way that he settles it is to repeatedly point out that idols don't know and can't cause the future. That's what a false God is. We already saw that. So the reality is that if you're picturing a God who's like that, you're picturing and you're worshiping a false god. And that should cause us great alarm. God says to worship that which does not know and is not controlling the future is to worship a false god, not me. Now open theists don't think they're doing that, but I'm, I'm persuaded they're confused. They've set up a god that's really an idol. And this is serious. It is an affront to God. It is a diminishing of his glory. The title of one book about all this is called God's Lesser Glory. They've got the issue right. Once we've sorted this issue out and we realize that God perfectly knows all the future and is bringing it to pass for his own glory, we have to, we must, we are bound to avoid that God and cling to this true God and worship him alone. That's one significant consequence who you're picturing and who you're worshiping. But I want to end, I want to wrap this together by concluding where the open theist starts in real life, at the side of the road with the accident. You can get, the open theist is trying to get an answer to that, and you can get a God who is not at all responsible for that, but is emotionally engaged with you, The open theist has shown you can get a God like that, but at tremendous price. Speaking experientially now, I think I've already tried to argue as what the Bible says, but experientially, try to put yourself back in that story, and let's think about this again. Earlier that afternoon, you decide to pray for your brother, let's say, who you know is going to be riding his motorcycle to your house. You pray, God, keep my brother safe. Don't let him get into an accident. If you pray that to the God of the Bible, and if he were to verbally respond to you, he might say something like this. Okay, son. Okay, daughter. Before the foundation of the world, I intended to use this prayer as the means to my ends. I am most glorified as all the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places watch you Depend on me. I am glorified by your asking. And for reasons that you do not understand and will never fully know. Reasons that bring great glory to me and great benefit to you. I've decided to answer your request and to grant it. Yes. You'll be there safe when you get home. He might say that. He also might say, Mrs. Tuffer, tougher. My son, my daughter... I hear your request, and I'm honored by your dependence. I'm glorified by it, but for reasons you may never be able to understand, for reasons related to my secret will that brings the most glory to me and the most good to you, ways that I understand but are hard for you, because of that, my answer is no. Please remember I have proven myself at the cross To be radically trustworthy and radically for you, look at Ephesians one and see all that I am for you because you are in Christ. Trust me, please. But the answer is no. You might say that too, like a parent talking to a child about vaccinations. He might just say that. He might just say, "Trust me when the pain comes. It is going to be painful." Trust me, I am all wise, I am good, I love you, and this is what I'm going to do. That is hard to swallow. That is incredibly painful, especially when you're standing next to the crushed motorcycle. I've never been in that situation. Can't imagine it exactly. But it must be, it must be awful. But I think, I think experientially I prefer that sort of an answer. Not that event, nobody wants that event. But I prefer that sort of an answer to what happens when earlier that afternoon I pray to the God of open theism. Listen to this. I pray to Him, God, keep my brother safe. Don't let him get into an accident. And he replies, My son, my daughter, I hear your request. I'm honored by it. It is a good one. But I can't answer it. Yes or no. I can't help you with that. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't control anything. We'll both have to wait and see. I'll find out before you because I know the present perfectly. And if an accident does happen, I'll be there at the side of the road to greet you when you get out of your car and I will be loving and caring for you. But because I can't control all these events that are going on in life and don't even know them, we'll both have to wait and see. You see what's happened there? God is incredibly compassionate and kind. And He cares for you. But effectively, he's become your neighbor. Well-meaning, but just not much real help. In describing a different fatal vehicle accident, John Piper, pastor and theologian in Minneapolis, writes of the tour bus truck collision that killed his mother. She was on a tour bus, and a beam of wood came off the roof of the truck, threw a window on the bus, hit her in the head, and killed her. In writing of that, he says, What was my comfort in those days? That is, the days of emotional pain after the accident. What was my comfort? He continues, Underneath, supporting all my unanswered questions and calming my heart, there is the confidence that God is in control and God is good. This is an important point. I take no comfort from the prospect that God cannot control the flight of a 4x4. Four four. For me, there is no consolation in haphazardness. I do not need to explain everything. That He reigns and that He loves is enough for now. You see that radically different answer? I don't need to be able to answer all of the questions I may never be able to answer all the questions, but what I'm resting on is that He reigns. He is sovereign over every single thing. There's no haphazardness. There's no randomness. He reigns and He loves. You can take God out of the driver's seat and remove from Him any responsibility over these events, but if you do that, you also remove from Him any control. And from where I'm standing... For me, there is no comfort in that, but only terror. Who controls car accidents and disease and weather and famine and war and earthquakes and hurricanes and all that stuff? Who controls these things who 's in charge? I understand i 'm speaking experientially here if i 'm asking that question that 's the starting point for why I would even want to consider an open god who 's in charge and the answer no one or you or the guy who has the most money or the biggest army or the brightest mind, any of those answers are incredibly more troubling to me than having to trust a God who at the cross already proved himself to be wise and loving and merciful and good and has just now decided to do something that I in my finite mind don't understand. That answer is much more troubling to me than, trust me, child, and look at the other evidence here that I'm for you. I read Ephesians one and it shapes my mind and it calls out to me. Trust me. Look at me. This is who I am. You won't know all the all the answers to all the questions, son. You're you're finite. But trust me, I've proven that. Experientially I cry, give me that kind of God, please. And thankfully the scriptures do. That's the God I really want, and you want, I hope, and that's the God who is. God perfectly knows every single thing about the future and is causing it. He's bringing it to pass through people, yes, but He's behind it. He's bringing it to pass for His own glory. He knows the future perfectly because He planned it. He's bringing the future to pass until ultimately all things, things in heaven and on Earth, have been united, brought under one head, Christ, brought to heal underneath of him. That's going to happen to the great unending praise of the triune God. And his message to us right now is, don't change me, trust me. I'm good. Let me pray. Father, I really hope in a lot of ways that this, this God of open theism does not make much sense to people. And I pray that who you really are makes plenty of sense and that you would convince us of that even more and that you would guard us in days and months ahead if we come across it. Lord, I pray, be a comforting, caring, loving God to us. Show us that side of you. Show us that to be real. And also give us confidence that you are in charge and that you reign. Speak words of encouragement and hope to your people, I pray, Lord. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission.